You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. Today we're going to do an interview with Mary Fleener. That was Mary Fleener's band, the Wigbillies, with the track Single Girl. Um, if you're interested in checking out more Mary Fleener stuff, www.maryfleener.com. Today we're going to talk to her about her, her music, her comics, her surfing, and uh, as Colin liked to say, her hedonism. Of well, the hedonism of the California MLU. There we go. That's the way I put it. So, don't mind me if I have any technical problems. We're going to bring Mary on now. Okay, we got you here, Mary? Yeah, hi, Robin. Hi. How's it going today? Pretty good, pretty good. Good. Ah, hi. Hi, it's Colin. Hey, Colin, it's been a while. Yeah, how you doing? I'm doing good. Robin, did you tell Colin what I said in the email about the last time I saw him where we were? No, actually, I want to bring that up on air. Uh-oh. Because uh-huh. this... Uh, uh, Mary and I have been exchanging emails back and forth towards uh, prepping for the show, and she had mentioned last time... You mentioned last time you saw... Colin in a jacuzzi in Mexico? No. <laughs> no, no, the second to last time. Oh. <laughs> no, we were dancing the night away in a castle. Oh, the chateau, yes. In the south of France. In the in Angoulême at the Angoulême Comic Book Convention. And the drunker we got, the faster the music got, and they were playing Bob Marley at this unearthly speed and I remember you were it was it was unsettling to you and, and Well, they and, and, they, and it was they were weird. trying to turn Bob Marley into a into like a disco dance tune, so they sped up the speed and and the dance floor it was cobblestone. <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was kind of like trying to you know dance uh, you know yeah in a uh, what would you call a Neolithic um, service. <laughs> it was it was an old chateau castle. We were in the basement and I got to talk to some. Some French aristocratic woman about the history of her family. And wow! See the, the little the o- dog Caesar. Hmm. Remember her little dog Caesar? No, I don't remember the little dog Caesar. Well, see, Robin, what this was—they invited a big group of people to Angoulême. It's a big comic convention in uh, France. And, uh, what was it? Nineteen ninety or ninety-one? Oh, I think it was ninety-two. Ninety-two. Well, it was sometime around there, and we all got to go, and and it was uh, we were all really scruffy. We've been walking around all day. We went to an award ceremony, and then everybody goes, "Get on the bus!" So we get on the bus, <laughs> and we're out in the middle of the countryside, and it's getting darker and darker. They wouldn't like, tell us where, where we were going. going. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, in the <laughs> heavens was this castle, and everybody in the bus went, <gasps> "Nice." Yeah. And, and and the road, the little path of the castle. People were on horseback, holding torches. We were in, like the honored guests, and in, in costumes, dripping in diamonds, and all dressed up. And we were all sl- <laughs> like slobs. <laughs> all, all all the French people were dressed immaculately. Oh my god! Uh, and all and the, the the actual cartoonists, you know, the ones that came over, were all just scruffy. And uh, we wound up playing pool. Sadly, the, the odd part to this story for me was was. The mentioning of Colin dancing. I do I, that on occasion, yes. It's something I've never experienced here in Vancouver. and I don't know. It just doesn't seem part of Colin's character. I don't dance either. And, <laughs> and a dance away we danced. I mean, we it was a, it was funny. Um, let's see, it was a, David Mazzucchelli was dancing. There was Kyle Baker. And, and his girlfriend, who's like, what, she was like six foot nine or something? <laughs> Seven feet tall girlfriend? She was built up from the ground, as they say. Nice. And, uh, she was my pool partner. Stefano. It was fun. Yeah. But but it was it was so 
you know, they had the buses that were taking the cartoonists back to town. Well, I kept drinking wine, drinking wine. I don't usually drink. Pretty soon it was just Kyle Baker and his girlfriend and I, and they were gone. And all of a sudden, I was alone at this castle, 3.30 in the morning, and I was, like, walking around just going, what am I going to do? And, I, and these French people came up to me, and I go, where are the Americans? Where are the Americans? And they go, across the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to have to sleep here tonight. And somebody, I guess the word got out, there was a couple of crazy Americans wandering the ground, so they got a taxi for us. <laughs> I got to bed about 4.30. And then signing comics away for the... For the French public the next day? Well, that was the weird part about Angoulême, is that they brought over a bunch of these cartoonists. I mean, I paid my own way, but when we got there, they didn't have we didn't have anything to do. No. You just <laughs> went there to be there. Yeah, they, they unless you had a publisher there that gave you uh, an opportunity to sign, there... There, there, there wasn't any any other way to meet the public. It was very weird. You just kind of wandered around between tables yeah, with the sign saying, I'm Colin Upton? <laughs> Not quite, but I, I kind of stood out. Well, the people weren't really coming to the pub- the North American publishing area. See, this was a deal, too. They were bringing people over, cartoonists for free, and then if you were a North American publisher, you got a booth for free. So it was an incentive to get people from the United States and Canada to, to come on over. But the people were really reluctant to go in that area. So I remember Chester and Brown had struck up a friendship with somebody from Germany, and they put him finally, like, at the entrance of the doorway. And then I guess the French people go, okay, this is all set up formal. This is a signing booth. This is a signing place. You know, again. So then then he got a lot of action, but they were people were real hesitant to you know, going into, into I don't know. It was, I don't think that. I don't think the publishers area uh, for the North American publishers was even open to the public. Oh well, gee, that probably that's a problem. That <laughs> sounds odd. Um, I'd like to kind of rewind and start to the beginning of uh, your comics and stuff, okay. um, just to kind of get people to know, um, you know, where you come from and stuff. Uh, Right now you have available, or you have released, let's see, there's Fleener from Zongo Comics, the, the I guess, the sub-publishing company of Matt Groening, and right. Life of the Party. Now, is that still available from Fantagraphics? Yes. Okay, uh, and that collects stuff from Slutburger and other stuff? Yeah, that was a collection. Well, we should start from the beginning. My first comic was called Hoodoo. Hoodoo. And Hoodoo, and it was um, published by Ray Zone. He did 3D, lots of 3D comics, but he did three one-shots. He did one by Kim Deitch called There's No Business Like Show Business. He did one by Piz called American Primitive, and then we did Hoodoo. And that uh, was published in 1988, and it was adaptations of the Harlem Renaissance writer Zora Neale Hurston, who did a lot of anthropological work down in the in southern United States with uh, voodoo doctors, and um, she collected a lot of folklore of um, Afro-American people. And I, and I, being a musician and liking the blues so much, I was fascinated by this material, so I adapted it to comic form. Just kind of like further roots of 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 what you're into, I guess. Well, it's just sort of a, a part of Americana I find kind of interesting because it's it's southern and it's spooky and it's creepy and it's it's uh <laughs> some of its myth and a lot of its legend but it's, it's it ties in with the blues and jazz and i'm very interested in that and playing that kind of music so it it appealed to me and and i don't know i just 
took her stories and put pictures to them, basically. I haven't actually even seen that. So well, I'll you can to... buy it on my website, www.maryflinner.com. <laughs> oh, there we go. Got to have yeah, the plug. Yeah. And we'll also, I'll have uh, links on the website for the Ink Studs website if people get around to checking out that. Um, right. But, you know, go straight to www.maryfleener.com. And that's Fleener with two E's. Yeah. Correct. Not a not an E-A. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've got, I got to mention, I mean, the way I got into comics, I mean, I always wanted to do comics, but I really didn't know if I had the ability to do the Sunday kind of comics because when I grew up there was Tarzan that was being drawn by Bern Hogarth and the Little King and Chester Gould, Dick Tracy. I mean, to me, these people were like gods and and the way they drew, I just, you know, didn't think I could ever be good enough. So I kind of stalled and when I saw those underground comics in the early 70s, that's when I was going, oh, okay, this is, this is, uh, this, this is pretty cool, but I, didn't really get inspired till the you know about eighty four or eighty five. So I started self publishing because I heard about you know Xerox machines were now making really good copies, and I'd heard about other people making mini comics like Colin. And so you would write to these people, and you'd send them their, your comic, and they'd send you a comic back. Or you'd hear about a, a, a comic like Weirdo, for example, where Pete Bag would always have a little review of the mini comics in there. So you'd write those people, and they'd. So across the country, people were starting to hook up, and then people were forming fanzines. What was that, Comics FX, for a while? And it was that more, it sounds like a community of independent minds. Well, yeah, because nobody, nobody was publishing Undergrounds anymore, and there was uh, Kitchen Sink was sort of doing, oh, I don't know, a lot of Mark, I, I don't know. There was Kitchen Sink, Last Gas, Fanographics was just starting to do Love and Rockets. And it just seemed the easiest way to get your stuff out there was to do it yourself. And I think Colin's still doing that. Uh, I, I, well, I I am too, <laughs> because um, it's um, it's almost better to do it yourself. Uh, as the retailer market shrinks, and um, you know people still think comic book shops are where you get, are superheroes. Mm-hmm. There's still that stigma, so it's really hard to, you know, and it's been hard to break into the bookstores. Um, I mean, there are there's a graphic novel section, and I think quite a few of them now. It used to be if you did a comic book book, it was in the humor section. Yeah, I, I remember looking through <laughs> the local big bookstores and finding, oh, great, yeah, <laughs> not but, the best selection yeah. of stuff in there. Um, but now we got the internet and I have a website, the, yeah. so it's, it's better than going to a store. I don't have to get you know, especially in also in as a, as a, you know my website is a gallery. I, I I can sell art through my website and not have to give a commission of fifty percent to a gallery. So the internet's changed everything for cartoonists. That's true. It's a, a lot of I don't know if you ever look in in Vancouver. We have this thing. I guess it's it's become international and start. I think it started here with the the daily grind where these local cartoonists would post up every day, Monday to Friday, a new at least two-panel comic strip, where it's quite the challenge where, where they have more of an opportunity to show their, themselves to more people, but also working at, you know, continuing doing something instead of letting it fall to the wayside, which unfortunately happens with a lot of comics. Oh, yeah. Well, that's because people don't know where to buy them. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Yes. Yes, yes. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us about the, the origins of your Cubist style of cartooning. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't realize what the origins were until about a month ago. Oh. Um, I got that book, uh, Jim Flora. 
the illustrator, Erwin Chusage, put it out. He, the, it's called The Mischievous World of Jim Flora. And he was a 60s illustrator that did a lot of album covers. Uh, Tim Deitch's father, Gene Deitch, was really influenced by him. And you see his influence in Shag and Tim Biscop and J.D. King, remember? Um, uh-huh. From New York. Yeah. And people are always comparing me to Picasso, and I just, I never liked Picasso. <laughs> but I had to admit they were right because... You know, the similarities are there, but I just, you know, I knew it was something. I always say, well, it was the, the fabric from the 60s because my mom sewed and the wacky, des- you know, the space-age designs that you'd see in the restaurants and and all the peaky culture and things that I grew up with in, you know, West Covina particularly. And, um, and, it, and it was this Jim Flora guy, and I never realized it until I... I got this book a month ago, and I go, oh, my gosh, I thought I was the only one that, I thought I invented motion lines, you know, on my paintings, and, you know, you know like in cartooning when somebody was moving their hand, you put the little lines around the hand. Mm-hmm. Well, in a lot of my paintings, I like to use, like, 20 of those lines to make it really kinetic, and I go, oh, gosh. Okay, so I guess subliminally I was influenced by him, but also, too, um, Robert Armstrong, who did Mickey Rat. Every once in a while, he'd do a, a, a sort of a cubistic treatment to one of his cartoons, and I thought that was really great. So really? I, I, I don't I remember think. that. Huh? I don't remember that from him. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, uh, a, lot, a lot of the, uh, well, Mickey Rat's cousin, Dizzy Ratstein, the uh, jazz trumpet uh, rap player <laughs> guy, every once in a while, he'd put, you know, Blake, draw like a jazz riff, and he'd make it all real cuby and kind of geometric, and I and I go, God, that's... That's really cool. Why not? Well, I I really like the way you use that because I find most use most of the Cuban s- stuff um, to really like express like that kind of I don't know madness in an experience or altered state. Altered state. Well, sure. I mean, a lot of people do yeah. that. Pete Bag does that really effectively too. And somebody you know blows their stack, all of a sudden their head gets really big and, and their eyes <laughs> bulge out. And you know, since you can get away with murder in comics and draw or every you know anything. It's real effective for that. And, you know, I'm just trying to do something original because, you know, um, you got to set yourself apart somehow. Yeah. And no. it's, uh, it takes a long time to do, though. I mean, it really is, you know, you get those circles, you have to use a circle template and a ruler, and it, 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 quite, it takes quite a bit of time. I, I remember the first time I, I met you at San Diego, you did a sketch for me. In, in my little sketchbook, and you were using dimes and quarters to yeah, do Yeah, I was. <laughs> I forgot about that. To do the circles. Oh, yeah, because oh, I, I hate drawing in sketchbooks so much because <laughs> Sorry. I'm not a, I, I need my, you know, my, my brush and my, my table and my, you know, my little, I need to pencil it. I mean, I, and then you, see, you go through these sketchbooks and people just, you know, whip off these beautiful drawings and you're just going, and I always do one, and it always looks terrible. And I liked it. I, I saw it. Awful. I liked it. It was a lovely little sketch. Well, once in a while you get lucky, but most of the time I'm just like, <laughs> like, uh, I need, yeah, give me, give me a, I, well, I, even here at home I use wine glasses and records and vinyl to, and plates, you know, <laughs> whatever works. But, you know, I, I, um, I, part of that cubismo, uh, Robert Armstrong co- uh, coined that term too. Part of the cubismo thing I like is I'm influenced by Egyptian art, and I like futurism a lot. Um, that was that art movement where things were done. Um, oh, there's a famous painting called The City Also Rises, and 
they were very kinetic in the way they did stuff. So I, I, I like that action going on. Now, you went to school for printmaking, am I correct? Yes, I did. And have you, what kind of like stuff do you utilize from that kind of, that education into your art? And what other art are you doing other than the comics? Because it sounds to me like you're, have your fingers in different pies. Yeah, because I get bored pretty easily. I mean, when you do a comic book, it's a good three or four months. For me, it is. And after you're done with it, you just don't want to, you want to do anything else because it's just so intensive. It's all you think about. You're laying in bed. You're seeing the next page. It's just, you just become so consumed. Or I do. So, um, I, I did. I went to Long Beach, uh, Cal State Long Beach University, um, for a number of years and majored in printmaking. And, uh, I was carrying quite a, I was, well, I had a pretty heavy load. I was studying lithographs, etching, um, Serography, uh, woodcut. I mean, that was my major, so I would take at least three three classes a semester of, of printmaking. Oh. And um, oh my god, you know, when I put my zinc plate in the nitric acid, I would never wear gloves. I was smoking. We do all nighters, and and I pretty much poisoned myself. So I just dropped out. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take printmaking in art school just because it seemed too dangerous. <laughs> Oh, it's it's extremely dangerous, and if you get a, a resource book on the chemicals and what they can do to you, um, you know, I'm real lucky that I don't have any, you know, cancer or something, because, it, it, you know, benzene and paint thinner and that. Lots of times, if I didn't have any solvents, I'd use nail polish remover on the plate, you know, to get the ink off. So, um, besides, well, what I learned from printmaking was how to see... Um, negative spaces because when you do printmaking their plate it's got to be the negative of what it's like a, a, a film negative mm-hmm. because when you put the paper on the plate you have to get a positive image to get that you have to do a negative image on your plate so it was real good to teach me how to how to to um oh i don't know design things on a in a square or on a anything and understand balance i, I guess you'd put it that way and it, it's a weird way it it peeled, I have really bad dyslexia, so it was easy for me to think that way. Because I, I, to this day, I, I think Colin, you do you're dyslexic too, aren't you? Didn't? Uh, yeah, a bit. Oh, I'm I'm really bad, and I mean, I, I look at sometimes words and they're backwards still. So um, anyway, I took to it pretty readily, but I uh, also about that time I loved ceramics. I used to do a lot of pottery, and uh, so in the last couple of years i finally got a potter's wheel and i got a kiln and the last art show i had was a solo show where i did hand-built masks um, oh. out of clay and they looked like my drawings with the triangles <laughs> and the circles and the uh, cone five glazes now are they're beautiful they're, they're just like acrylic paint have you got any photos of them on your website i will i'm going to be updating my website next week and i'm going to be um putting them on there and uh, my new paintings i've got a whole new series of paintings called voodoo angels that i've been doing so i also you know do illustration for magazines um that's kind of slowed down in the last few years but um and then i you know i do regular fine art paintings i'm um i'm showing usually you know somewhere or other um i was really lucky to be in this uh year-long show at the american visionary art museum in baltimore it was called High on Life, mm. and uh, I had four pieces in that, and uh, big ones, you know, like 30 by 40, 36 by 48. Wow. And so I, I do, um, 
what else? So, what, what, what we really want to know is, do oh, you still surf? Yeah. Wow. I'm a boogie boarder. A boogie boarder. What yeah, I tried surfing for a couple of years, and it's really to me, it's really dangerous to be out there with a seven foot piece of really hard resined foam with a fin on it. I'd rather get on one of those little um, sponge boards, as they call it, and just float. Well, you don't float. You kick. You 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 paddle with your arms. So you're working your upper body, and you you kick with your feet. You have flippers on your feet, and. Uh, yeah, I just got a new wetsuit. I got a four three, so I can go surfing in the winter. Nice, my brother. I don't like cold water very much anymore. But it's amazing when I was a kid living in Vancouver, we'd go right down to Kitsilano or you know, um, uh, whatever the beach is over in West Van, and the water'd be forty two. That wouldn't stop us. Ambleside. Ambleside, yeah. Ambleside Beach. Yep. And we just jump in the water. It's summer. You wear your bikini. You go to the beach. You go in the water. <laughs> My brother actually does a lot of surfing on the west coast of the island. He just it, it was of Vancouver Island. Yeah. Uh, oh sure. Yeah. He. Was, I don't know. It's never something he was really into. And then one day, it's just all of a sudden, he's a surfer, and it's it's quite the lifestyle over there. I know, but it's those people are, are hardcore, as they say, because the water is extremely cold, and then you've got you know well, great you, white sharks. You you're know. in San Diego, right? Yes. How well, cold does the water get there? Uh, maybe 51. That's not cold. No. <laughs> not, compared to the, not compared to Vancouver Island, it isn't. But, um, oh, yeah, they've got their, their, their secret spots up there, and they've got their localism, too. They've got areas like if you, you're not one of the guys, and there'll be some guy that'll come up to you and tell you, hey, get out of the water, I'm going to, you know, kick your ass. And that's something I don't like about the surfing world. These guys would get real territorial, it's, Pathetic. Yeah, that's not cool. No, but where we surf is great. Um, down here in Lucadia, um, in the summer, there'll be, I don't know, the Rasta kids will be down there with bongos, and they'll be, you know, playing their bongos, and you can hear it out in the water, and, and uh, people don't leave trash. For some wonderful reason here in the North County, that's what they call where I live, North County of San Diego, people are really clean. You, you never see trash on the beach. That's really cool because this is Surf City. This is it's not really more of a lifestyle. It's, it, there's like surf shops, so it's really part of the economy. Because <laughs> people and you know it's a fad. People come here. They, they come from all over the world. Just come to Lucadia. They take a surf lesson. Then they go out to eat. You know, it's part of the whole thing of coming to Southern California. You drive on the freeway and you know they go to Disneyland and take your surf lesson. That's pretty cool. They're pretty healthy. You know, for the kids around here, too, it's really good because most of the kids that grow up surfing with their parents never get in trouble. Well, they don't, I guess if you're out surfing, you don't have time to get in trouble. Well, you and get Getting humbled. up in the morning and... Huh? You know, you, when you get held down by a six-foot wave and you almost run out of air, you, to a kid, you realize... That's like taking kids out in the forest. Like, when, you know, when we lived in West Van, you know, growing up in the forest and, you know... Learning about that, you you it, it humbles you. I mean, it really does. It's good. It's, that's why they that's why they send kids out to camps. You know, kids that are troublemakers, they send them out to boot camp in the middle of the forest and go, all right. You know, you think you're so tough, get out here. So these kids, you think you're so tough, go out surfing. Let's see, let's see it. You know. And, uh, so they're you know, it's a good lifestyle. So troubled youth should go surfing. 
Yeah. I think I like that philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, yeah, get thrashed out in the waves, get your butt kicked, you know, almost drowned. <laughs> you appreciate life a lot more. You go, hey. But now, anyway, um, and then, you know, aside from all the art I do, then the music takes up a whole lot of time, too. Now, Colin was mentioning at San Diego that he'd seen you perform with some other cartoonists in a band. Yeah. Remember the basement of the Hotel San Diego? Mm-hmm. Oh, what a, how, that, what a sweat box that was. That was horrible. Oh, God. The, well, uh, what the, we used to do, we used to have, um, it was a group of, uh, of Wayne Honath, Dennis Warden, J.R. Williams, Roy Tompkins, and sometimes Jimmy Blanchard would come and stay here at my house, because I'm about half an hour from downtown. And um, it was like... Uh, well, basically a four-day party. <laughs> we would exchange tapes through the mail of songs we liked, and then they'd come to the house, and we'd have um, a rehearsal, and we'd try to get you know try to play somewhere, try to play at the Comic Con or have a party here at the house. J.R. Williams, uh, not only is he a good cartoonist, but he's a really good singer, and he did a lot of theater, so the guy's really funny too. And then Wayno, he's a really good performer and he plays harmonica and he's he's a good singer too so it, was, it just sort of happened and uh yeah that time we played for the the downtown um under the hotel san diego they promised me they would turn on the air conditioning and they lied so it was like god what was it like 105 in there oh it, it was something horrible Oh, well, upstairs they had the, the drag queen, you know, review, and it was cool as could be up there for the drag queens. The drag queen review. It wasn't connected with the comic convention. Okay, no. I was going to say, like, that's just two different cultures that I don't see mixing very well. Oh, but they do. Yeah? Every year at the Comic-Con, they're... Oh, okay, now you get the, the, you know, the guys that like to dress like Frankenfurter from the Rocky Horror Show. Well, you get those guys <laughs> that dress like that for four days. That's a kind of a drag. And then you got, there's guys, I, I see many transvestites at the Comic-Con every year. Wow. I you haven't been, I haven't <laughs> been in a while. I've <laughs> never been to a comic event south of the border, so I haven't experienced any of the madness of a, of a large, full-scale Comic-Con. In Vancouver, our comic conventions consist of a, a room with yeah, it would be like twenty tables, or SBX or something. No, no Klingon transvestites. No Klingon transvestites. No, no nothing. I, I, I want one day to someone to show up dressed up to one of our comic cons. But I don't think it's going to happen. Oh, Van- that, that's just wrong. Van- well, you you've lived in Vancouver. You know we're pretty laid back people subdued. here. Subdued. I mean, I, I couldn't help but notice reading uh, Life of the Party that. All these these stories of drunken hedonism you were involved in, that none of them take place in Vancouver. Well, I was, I was a, a young girl. Oh, okay. How how young? I mean, oh, I was fourteen. I was oh, fourteen when we moved. Oh, I see. But it's just like when you hit California, did did things change? Well. Um, uh, I, I was, was there a I, culture shock, I mean, from living in I Canada? I went back to visit my friends a year later. Uh, I would have been in grade 11. Mm-hmm. And everybody was drinking already. And I think uh, by the time, you know, everybody was 18, everybody had a pub night. And I, I don't know, I thought everybody was pretty wild up there. I mean, the drinking with the young people was a lot more than down here. Well, maybe back in that <clears throat> time period. 
We're talking Uh-oh. 68, 69, 67. Pretty much American kids in California were kind of down on drinking because everybody's hippies and people were taking LSD and getting stoned. It didn't seem to be as rowdy as, as the Canadians because I went back when I was 18. I was whisked off to a pub. And I, I forgot that the beer was a lot stronger up there in Canada. <laughs> and these waiters just kept bringing beers. I mean, I was looking at six beers in front of me, and my friends were all like, ah, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and I finished one beer, and I'm like, oh, my God, what happened to me? So it was, I just, I always thought all my friends I grew up with were a lot wilder than I was. Wow. The wild Canadians. Yeah, who would think? And, um, but, you know, as I wrote in my book, my the story I have in this new book by uh, that Chronicle Books put out this, uh, for road strips that uh, Pete Friedrich edited. That's the story I did, the Landed Immigrant song. Um, it's a good thing I did move because I was really, you know, starting to go downtown by myself and go to Second Beach and meet guys, and you know, I wanted to grow up in a hurry. So it's a good thing we moved back down to the United States. <laughs> I don't know. Reading that life of the party it looks like you got into a fair amount of trouble in the states too. No, I've never been. Actually, I've never been in any trouble. I've had one ticket for driving too slow, and I've never been arrested. And and I've got good credit. And it's gotten pretty close, though, hasn't it? Come on. What? It's been close to being arrested. No. No. Nope. Well, that that boat trip. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, I forgot about that. But. Getting stopped by the coast guard and. Yeah, that was pretty hairy, but that wasn't. You know, we were, we were just we uh, we knew we didn't know anything about what the guy had done until because he well we were we were totally in the dark. So we might have we we I don't know. It was yeah, kind of scary. <laughs> Many of your stories involve you know people who are kind of on the edge. Do you? Uh, do you change the names to protect the guilty or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I change the names and I change the appearances. Actually, in the the landed immigrant song about the the politician's daughter that I was friends with, mm-hmm. I definitely changed his name. Um, she, she, you know, she could be listening to this radio show right now. So, um, I'm, I'm, and it's not because I'm worried about getting sued or anything. I just think that. If the story's good enough, who cares if I'm drawing them like they looked and, and, and you know, I don't want to use their real name. That's understandable. It doesn't, well, it doesn't matter, really. Yeah. But um, I am planning on doing a, a, I have a project that I want to do in the next year. I've cut all my drawing paper. It's about four inches thick. <laughs> and I want to do a, a more autobiographical stuff about meeting famous people in weird places. Oh, so, um, cause, like, uh, I did a story about meeting Joey Ramone at the uh, Comic-Con. Wow. At the old location, and um, it's really because of the Ramones. I'm, this is going back to your original question about getting into comics, and I saw the Ramones in 1977, and it was so funny because I'd never seen a, a crowd of punks before, and the Ramones were just, you know, I laughed the whole time they were playing, and it was just like, <laughs> oh, my God, look what's happening. Everything's changing. Great. I went home and I started drawing the people I'd seen that night. And I started making up little comic strips about them. So the Ramones were kind of the reason I draw comics in a weird way. And then um, when I did my first cop issue of Slutburger, I listened to the Ramones the whole time I was drawing it because I just found four of their albums in a thrift store. And so when I saw Joey Ramone, I you know, had the perfect you know thing to say, 
oh, here's my comic. I listened to your music the whole time I was trying. <laughs> so, so here, please take it. And he was really nice. And um, in fact, that piece is in the latest CD box set that Rhino put out, Weird Tales of the Ramones. So oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I wish he could have seen it before he died, but... Mm. Oh, well. And I was always hoping that he would, like, use Slut Burger in a song title or something. I wouldn't have cared if he would stolen it. <laughs> I thought it would be cool. <laughs> it would be an homage. It would be. So, anyway, this book I want to work on about meeting famous people, um, it'd be stuff like that. Like meeting Mo Tucker from the Velvet Underground at an Aaron Brothers art mart when I worked there in the 70s. And wow. Meeting her husband and... And talking to her on the phone and how weird she was. <laughs> I that thought weird. Mo Tucker was the sensible one. Uh, yeah, of the Velvet very Underground, sensible, very blunt. Ah, very blunt. And after our conversation, I just decided I didn't want to call her back. <laughs> and she definitely was very East Coast, very New York. You know, strictly business. Wow, I'm a big Velvet Underground fan, so I'm looking forward to reading that. Oh, me too. I like, well, growing up, you know, in the late 60s, I detested hippie music. I, I couldn't stand what they, Simon Garfunkel and all that stuff was just, ugh. <laughs> I was into the blues and jazz, and then the Velvet Underground came along, and, and the Stooges I liked, and the MC5, I, and Mitch Ryder. I've always gone for the more, you know. That kind of dirtier sound. Absolutely. Actually, my favorite group right now are the Dirt Bombs out of uh, Detroit. They're really great. I haven't listened to them, but I see the name a lot. I, I think well, any band from Detroit's usually pretty good. I don't know. There's just something about it. The poverty and the yeah, and the, and the cold winters and yeah, it's kind of like you know the, our, our Liverpool or something. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, what about CanCon? I mean, uh, you, you lived in Canada. Did you ever like listen to Gordon Lightfoot or? And Marie, or <laughs> I like Gordon Light's foot first record. It wasn't too bad. Uh, some of the ballad stuff he wrote was kind of like Tom Russell. Uh, I don't know if you know Tom Russell, but he he plays a lot with Dave Alvin. He used to be in the Blasters. Uh, Tom Russell writes a lot of songs that they're like they tell a story, that kind of stuff. So at first, Gordon Light's foot was all right, but when he got to Sun, what was that stupid record, um, Sundown? Or uh, yeah, I think there was I one called no Sundown. Idea. All I know is he bought my dad's the the house my dad grew up in. Gordon Lightfoot bought. Wow. Oh, where might that be? In Rosedale and To, in Toronto. It's like the uh, the ritzy of the ritzy of the ritzy neighborhoods. Oh, the British properties of uh, Toronto. Basically, yeah. 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 Oh, I was shocked to find. You know, we lived on six twenty Greenwood, which was up there, and I just found out that all those houses sell for six million dollars. Sweet Jeeves. Oh, yeah, that's the British properties for you. Six million. And then what's really crazy is the house we lived in, it was two stories, and it had a beautiful view of the city. It was just almost like uh, 180. You, know, you, could see, you could see North Van. You could see, if you had binoculars, you could, just, you could almost see the university. It was beautiful. And these people that, that bought our old house, they let all the trees grow in the backyard, so they don't have a view anymore. And that's just so nuts. I can't, you know, because I used to just, you know, I, after growing up in West Covina where it was hot and smoggy and it was suburban and it was, you know, just, you know, freeways and, yeah, you know, to, to move to Vancouver was like heaven. And you just look at that beautiful view. That was all I, all I remember pretty much of my childhood is just looking out the window and going, God, this is 
bitches. You can see the mountains, Grouse Mountain. You didn't mind the rain? Oh, I loved it. I loved the rain. I loved the snow. I, like I said, I came from West Covina where um, the smog was just horrible. I come from home from school every day and I couldn't breathe from the pollution. My chest would hurt. It was hot. You'd look down the street, you could see a mirage in the summer. We fried an no. egg on the sidewalk one year. What? We fried an egg on the <laughs> sidewalk. It got so hot in West Covina. I couldn't imagine that. I'm such a Vancouver boy. Oh, it was ugh, hideous weather. Hideous. And then when it would rain, the, the teachers would treat the rain like it was, like, you know, plutonium or something. They, you couldn't run in the puddles. You'd get punished if you got wet. Everything about rain was wrong. So when we moved to Vancouver, it was just, you know, everything's green, and it's because of the rain. And, and it now the first night it snowed, our whole family ran outside. We were running, you know, going, ah, oh, it's snowing, it's snowing. <laughs> so, it, no, I loved it. I, um, you ever, ever think of coming back? Um, gosh, <laughs> last time I was there was, for the world, was the World's Fair. We went to that. Oh, the Expo. 86. The Expo. 86. Yep. And it was really funny, too, because I was telling Paul all about the customs guys. I go, now, these customs guys, you you, you say, yes, sir, and no, sir, and don't give them any grief, and if they ask for your ID, and they just waved us through because it was the expo. <laughs> nice. And I just go, this is not typical customs. Yeah. <laughs> Jello Piafra does a great customs in, uh, impression in, uh, I think it was at Highway 61. Uh, nice Canadian movie. I recommend seeing it. Oh, okay. Just so you can see Jello Biafra doing his best customs impressions. Oh, I'm, great. I'm not a big Jello Biafra fan, but he was really good in that. Well, um, my brother works for the uh, railroad, and he works in the customs office in uh, Blaine. I mean, Bellingham. Oh, cool. So I hear stories all the time. The oddities. And actually, the, the CD that you sent me, your CD by the Wigbillies going up the mountain, plug, 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 I think was opened by customs, or they looked at it. You know why? Because I didn't put document. I checked other. Uh, so I they gave said... me permission to open it. Because I was wondering what that other thing was. So I thought, well, I'll try. Because, you know, I, I'm mailing art. In fact, I'm, I've got to mail some art to somebody in Vancouver tomorrow, actually. Uh. And down here now, since it, the, the uh, Patriot Act or whatever the new Nazi law the government's passed... Um, to mail anything outside the United States, you have to fill out four forms. Wow. wow. And they try to trick you, too, because if it says if you've checked out document, 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 they'll give you a form where they don't have document on there. So they want you to put gift or something, and then they can assign a value. Don't you have to pay 20%? Um, like if I sent you that CD and said it was 100 bucks, you'd have to pay 20% tax on that, right? Uh, it would be the GST and PST, and then there would be a surcharge that's like $7 for them opening it. I think they just, I don't know if they open it or not, but it was stamped customs declared, um, Ooh. which I've never had before. It's weird. Like I used to do lots of shopping on eBay, never had any problems, and then I recently got some comics from the States, and that box got opened. They didn't actually open the, the comics were all sealed up, and they didn't actually go through the comics, which... It's good, and not that there's anything nasty in it, but it's odd this happening. It's my name now that I'm doing stuff in comics, getting red flagged. Well, also too, I think I'm on an FBI list because um, several years ago I had a PO box, and um, I would get a lot of fan mail and people, you know, trying to either impress me or outrage me. They'd put on the envelope pictures of naked women. They'd write on there 
Satan kicks ass. I mean, <laughs> the most stupid. I, I never knew what I was going to find when I would open my P.O. box. Some guy mailed me his um, driver's license once, and because he said that was the only picture he had, and you know, I, I get bizarre stuff. And then I noticed all the packages from Europe were open, and I always thought, well, you know, that's you know, this is America. We don't do that here, right? And then I uh, worked for a, a magazine called uh, Women in General, and their logo was wig, and it was the female sign over the circle with the cross below it. And that was all over the envelope. And I was also doing a lot of work for Hustler at the time. But Hustler put just uh, Larry Flint Productions, L, uh, the LFP Productions. And so this, this package was open. It was from San Diego. And I just go, what the heck, you know? And then, then I noticed all my mail was being open. So I got really mad. I closed my P.O. box. And not only did they not forward me my mail for a year, but I was sent some child pornography at my home address. I was sent this thing. It was a P.O. box from Tarzana, and it was called Asian American. And here was this picture of this naked Asian nine-year-old boy. Wow. And so I got really worried, so I called, contacted the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and I talked to an attorney called Burton Joseph, and he told me to surrender the item at the post office and file a form and that way I could, you know, pretend I was the outraged citizen. And he goes, and while you're at it, don't mail any more comics over state lines because that's how they busted Mike Diana. And Mike Diana was a cartoonist in Florida that did a, a comic called Boiled Angel. Mm-hmm. That's he got, uh, he's the only cartoonist to ever be convicted for drawing obscenity in the United States. And what happened, they had, they had a serial killer down in Florida, in Gainesville, I believe. And because of the stuff he was drawing, and, and Mike Diana can't draw, you know. <laughs> well, it's Rory Hayes at best, but he does a lot of stuff where it'll be Jesus, and he's impaled, impaled on a cross with babies with severed heads, you know, that kind of shit. And so I guess some detective called him up and thought, well, maybe this is, you know, maybe you got a lead here. And apparently Mike Diana was kind of a smart ass to the guy. So they ordered some comics from him from out of state and busted him for, you know, for that. That's how they got him. So I uh, I took Burton's advice and took a lot of weird books I had out of here and, and paraphernalia and, and et cetera. And um, from, from the last eight years, all my packages at Christmas are just opened. So we got a, it's a very, it's fascist down here right now. So, But I, I don't recall your stuff being all that, obscene um to be honest well because though but because i had on slut burgers adults only you must have a statement by the person who's ordering the comics and it says i state that i'm over 18 years of age last gas has that um ripoff press used to have that when they were in business and you have to have the age statement uh, about a month after all this stuff went down i did get two requests for slut burger now keep in mind i hadn't done slut burger for about three years and this was uh, orders for issue number two, and it said, oh, I hear you have this sexy comic called Slut Burger. Please send me a copy, and there was a $5 bill. And I had to return the money and say, hey, unless I get an age statement from you, I cannot mail you this this comic. And I never heard back from either of these people. So that, Sounds like a setup. Uh, yeah, I guess I think so. And um, so I, you know, when I'm on panels and stuff, like in San Diego, and we start talking about, legalities and, you know, retailers getting busted. I always tell people the story 
and it's 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 depressing. <laughs> it's you know, it's not a funny little comic book story. It's it's, it's serious stuff. So um um so I don't uh, I mean I mail a hoodoo because that yeah and you're right was that Colin that you made the observation that my stuff it's pretty wholesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah I mean it's not exploitive. Well, nipple. Okay, nipples and tum tum, which is a title I did for Eros. I mean, every page has a sex act or something on it. Well, you know. But that's I'll, Eros. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll let them worry about me. <laughs> now, is there only one issue of nipples and tum tum? Yes, there is. There was a ten-page story in Dirty Stories number two, and um, I have a whole story written to do another one. I just haven't had the time in the last year. The uh, last. Actually, the last three years, I've been playing so much music, and I was involved in fine art shows. And I, you know, I've been doing a couple of pages here and there. I did pages for the Comics Journal specials. And you know, Colin, it's really funny. I was thinking of you a whole lot like four months ago. I was uh, working for Tom Pomplin. He's got those uh, books out of. He does Eureka Productions, and he does. Cla- uh, what's it called? A graphic classics and adventure classics, and it's like classics illustrated. Oh, I haven't seen those. I'm surprised you haven't done anything for him because they did it. He had a Mark Twain issue, uh, Edgar Allan Poe issue. Oh, I, actually, I think I have seen those. Those are quite nicely put together. Oh, they're great, and yeah. I had to illustrate the poem Gunga Din. <laughs> so I was thinking about you because you always do lots of soldiers and, and war scenes and stuff, and, and you know I've always liked your stuff because you, you got the backgrounds. You, I mean, God, it must take you forever to do. I mean, you draw like a hundred people on a panel. Well, you know, if if you need any historical reference, <laughs> Collins the man. I've got the library. Yeah. Well, I was really worried about what you were going to think of what, what you, I was thinking. What I hope Colin Upton doesn't like you know laugh at this because I didn't know much about <laughs> British imperialism. I had to read up on it. I didn't know you know about the uniforms, so I had to go to the library and do you know a lot of research and you know what would Gunga Din wear? You know, would he? You know, what what would his turban look like? You know, and it turns out during that time there were two you. Know, several different kind of uniforms so i asked the editor well God, which uniform should i use and he goes ah the one from the cary grant movie <laughs> i go oh, you're kidding all right because that movie i think is so i mean it's rollicking good fun but it's so stupid and gunga din is he's, he's ancient mm-hmm. i mean the poem he seems like he's probably 15 or something but that was really fun to do that and uh but this last year uh, a lot of my time has been taken up with political activism I um, was fighting a local uh, issue here where they were trying to uh, create a redevelopment district here in Lucadia, which would have given the city power of eminent domain. That means they can seize property and sell it to private developers. Fabulous. And I just said, no way, Jose. (laughs) So I started a guerrilla art campaign, putting up stuff on every flagpole that I could find in town. And um, at one point, we had 2,000 posters everywhere. And it really, I I used Thomas Nast as my inspiration. And then I've been going to a lot of peace rallies. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Cindy Sheehan last month. Oh, wow. She was at a a rally in San Diego, and I got her autograph on my my big sign that I hold. I stand with the women in black every month here in, in Encinitas. And women in black is a group that was started in Israel, and we... We stand in silent protest for an hour, we dress in black, and we hold signs, and then we go away. But, you know, it's something. So why do you think the FBI is interested in you? 
Yeah, well, no, now I'm giving them something to be interested in, you know. <laughs> they're they're going to pay attention and have, uh, give them something to look at. <laughs> now I don't, yeah, well, you know, it, 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 it's the rock and roll attitude. Uh, there's two rules of rock and roll. I don't get, can I say the, the F word? Uh, yeah, what the hell. Well, I don't give an F and who F and cares. That's the, the, those are my two new life rules. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so. Well, Mary, I have to uh, wind us up to a close here. Well, that's um, a good, a good motto to end it on. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point to end on. I really want to thank you for taking the time out with us to uh, sit and yak about comics for, or actually yak about you. Um, we're going to finish the show off with, um, what track would you like me to play off the Wigbillies CD? I played Single Girl to start the show out with. Oh, Party Time is a, party? Is a pretty rousing number. You know what? Number. That's funny because actually that's the one I had it put on. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you very much. Mary? Bye, Colin. Bye-bye. Nice San talking Diego. to you. Well, someday. Or ape. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Th- thanks, Mary. Bye. Okay, bye. And that was with Mary Fleener. You're listening to CITR 101.9 FM uh, from UBC. Uh, thank you very much, Mary, for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, I guess we, yeah, I, I would have said the phone number, but no one would be able to call in 822 uh, 2487. Um, Going to finish the show off with uh, Mary's band, the Wigbillies, going up the mountain. If you're interested in Mary's stuff, remember it's www.maryfleener.com. That's Fleener spelt with two E's. You can currently uh, find her stuff in the new Road Strips anthology uh, put out by Chronicle Books. And it's got her, Mary Fleener, uh, Pete Bag, uh, Beto Hernandez, Roberta Gregory, Roberta Gregory, uh, Megan Kelso, uh, Phoebe Glockner, big favorite of mine, Terry Laban, who I haven't seen anything from in a while. Um, it's good stuff, really good stuff. Her story uh, talks about her experience moving from West Van to Cali, moving down to Cali, to Cali. That was LL Cool J, if you're wondering what I was doing, Colin. I was. I was wondering. You were wondering. Yeah. Um, just a reminder, tomorrow at Sophia Books, uh, Pia Guerrera will be doing a signing. So if you'd like to meet Pia, the artist of Why the Last Man, an international hit. I think she even has a uh, Eisner Award for it. What time? I don't know. Six, seven o'clock? Hmm. Yeah. So we're going to finish the show off with the Wig Billies and then the Mr. Ron, some local Vancouver... Uh, Surf Billy and CITR 101.9. Next week, who knows what we're going to talk about, but it's going to be fun.